The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk. In what is the first known physical contact between the Russian and American militaries since the war in Ukraine began, a Russian warplane struck a US surveillance drone over the Black Sea on Tuesday. Now, could this spark a direct confrontation between the two superpowers? Well, for reaction and analysis, I'm joined now by Defence Editor at The Economist, Shashank Joshi. Shashank, good morning and welcome. Good morning to you. Now, first of all, uh, can you take us through the two versions of events, what the Russians are saying and what the Americans are saying? Sure. Well, what we know is that sometime before sunrise over the Black Sea yesterday, we saw a um, a US MQ-9 Reaper drone, which is a very big drone, you know, not a small, you know, piddling quadcopter. It's a proper fixed wing aircraft intercepted by a pair of Russian Sukhoi 27 jets. Now, what the Russians say is that the drone maneuvered sharply after some time and fell into the sea. Uh, what the Americans say, I think is a bit more persuasive, is that the two jets uh, uh, tried to intimidate the drone. They flew, uh, maneuvered around it aggressively, conducted close passes, close approaches. They sprayed jet fuel um, in the path of the drone, presumably to try and obscure the sensors that collect intelligence. That's the point of the mission. Uh, and then eventually, the, one of the, on the last of these passes, the drone uh, inadvertently struck, uh, or probably inadvertently struck, the pr- uh, propeller of the uh, a Reaper aircraft, causing it to then lose control and force the controllers to glide it down into the Black Sea. Um, I think that 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 sounds like the more plausible account. And certainly, the Americans in the past have released videos of these interceptions. Uh, they did that in December with a Chinese jet intercepting an American plane. And I think it's only a matter of time before we see the video. Hmm. So uh, the the question is, who actually knows definitively what happened? I mean, besides the equipment on board the drone. Uh, presumably both the Americans and, and Russians have, if you like, eyes in the sky. Yes, I mean, people video these things, right? You'll frequently see videos. In fact, you might recall from when we had that Chinese spy balloon, we saw a photograph of the U-2 pilot with a selfie with the drone in the background. And there's cameras in the cockpit. They'll record these interceptions. They'll record the audio. They'll record the video footage. Um, And the drone itself will be recording what's happening around it. That's part of the mission it's on, to collect intelligence. So they'll both have their account. But I think, think, you know, it's, it's, it's extremely unlikely that the US military would have said there was a collision with the propeller if there wasn't a collision with the propeller. I think that, you know, unfortunately, my experience of the last year and longer than that is the Russian government, the Russian state routinely uh, lies, you know, in small lies, big lies about all these kinds of things. And so they just don't have a great reputation of telling the truth on these matters. Yeah. So the fog of war and uh, propaganda and so on, it's very hard to necessarily penetrate through it. But um, who's right and who's in the wrong here? I mean, the Russians talk about, quote unquote, their temporary airspace space during the war in Ukraine. Does that have any legal status whatsoever? No, it's like you declaring a, a you know temporary driveway around your house and, and taking in all the neighbouring streets. It's meaningless. It's just a you know it's a complete it's a claim without legal foundation. And of course, we must be really clear here: the airspace they are claiming is not even theirs. It's off Crimea, which is an occupied part of Ukraine. It's an occupied Russian uh, Ukrainian peninsula taken in 2014 illegally annexed to Russia. So even if there was you know, an airspace around Crimea. It wouldn't be Russian airspace. It would be Ukrainian airspace. Um, but there's no such thing as this kind of exclusion zone in mm. peacetime. It just doesn't make any sense. Um, of course, you know what 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 they what is happening is that um, America is collecting lots of intelligence. So are its allies. They fly routinely over the Black Sea. They they look for the electronic emissions of Russian military units in Crimea and in Ukraine, other parts of Ukraine. 
and they try that to use that to build up a picture of Russian air defense radars, Russian military forces, where they are, what which ones are which ones are where, judging by their radio frequencies. And of course, Russia wants to stop that. And interceptions are very common. There's nothing unusual about that. In fact, I think just just today we saw uh, RAF and German jets intercept Russian aircraft flying between St. Petersburg and Kaliningrad. Those are bombers. So that's very common. There's nothing wrong with shadowing an aircraft and you know monitoring where it's going. That happens a lot, all the time. What's unusual, very unusual, is a close is a is a close pass to threaten it. But that does happen. You know, it, it happens from time to time. What is com- very very exceptional and very dangerous and completely unjustifiable is spraying jet fuel over an aircraft of that kind um, and actually colliding with it. That indicates unsafe, unprofessional behaviour. In this case, the American and say also incompetent behavior yeah. uh, and that uh, that no, that is extremely unusual and just not warranted by any procedures laws or norms do you have a view as to how it happened or why it happened in the sense that was it uh, pilot autonomy uh, you know they have general flying instructions as to what they should do or would this have to go back to the ministry of defense in in the kremlin for a decision to to, to intercept no, it certainly wouldn't go up to the Kremlin. It's much lower than that. Uh, but nor is it just left entirely to the whims of the pilot. We know from previous episodes, there's some very good studies of this by the Rand Corporation, an American think tank that shows, you know, they've got vi- audio recordings, radio interceptions of, um, you can hear Russian pilots being told what to do by their ground controller. And they typically escalate up a series of options. And that can be, uh, you know, just approaching closely. It can be uh, sh- uh, dipping their wings to show the weapons underneath their wings. It can be um, uh, using afterburners to create air turbulence in front of an aircraft and it can be uh, in the most extreme cases uh, achieving a radar lock on the target plane which is an extremely hostile act on at sea or, or in the air um, but you can see the instructions being given by the ground controllers saying you know keep trying get this plane off course try and stop it from going on this flight path do what you can and in that case and i'm referring to it was unsuccessful but you could see them receiving instructions from a ground air controller in this case we don't know precisely what's happened but i think i would emphasize um you know interceptions are common that's just mm. not unusual it's it's a legitimate thing um you know so the jets are allowed to fly in, in the airspace just as much as the american drones are but it is very very unusual yeah. to actually collide um, there's so few examples of that even through the Cold War. One could imagine uh, the reaction of America itself were Russian planes to be, you know, entering American airspace or uh, the airspace that America uh, kind of regarded as its own, even though legally it might not be off the coast of the United States, off the coast of Alaska, for instance. Well, that happens. You know, we see Chinese uh, ships entering um, these areas occasionally we see certainly see russian planes entering what we would call an air defense identification zone that isn't national airspace it is not uh, you know legally your space but it is a zone where some countries say you must identify yourself other countries say well sorry we're not going to do that that's not legal we have no obligation to do so russian planes do go into the uh, identification zones of european countries uh, we see frequently of course you know over the, over the british isles this occurs very often um and and we see raf type Foons often intercepting Russian bombers in that, those zones, but to my knowledge, I've never known you know an, a, a typhoon jet or another NATO jet to actually try and collide with a Russian plane or to spray fuel on it or even to intimidate it by you know achieving a radar lock. That to me, you know, is is, is not something we do. So I'm wary of, of even suggesting there is an equivalence between these yeah. two sets of actions. And, and do the Americans, do they? Do you think believe that this was a, an accident? That it was unprofessional? behavior that had a a negative result possibly for the 
the uh, the Russian uh, jet fighter as well, because we don't know what condition it was when it made it to land. Yes, I mean, from what it appears, um, they say this was unsafe and unprofessional. That refers to sort of the, you know, getting too close, not being in control of the plane. The word used by other Pentagon officials, one of them called it juvenile, um, in terms of, you know, the actual act of spraying fuel. And I think above all, though, they they do, judging from what, what I've seen so far and what I've heard officials say, they do think this was not, the collision itself was not intentional. Um, so it was always, the risk of that was there when you behave like this, you know, you're increasing the likelihood it happens. But they did not mean to do it. And the fact that they did strike it shows the plane, they say, um, uh, not in control and incompetent piloting, which is in some ways, you know, I'm not sure that sounds even more insulting to the Russians than actually saying it was intentional. So the drone went down. Um, who will retrieve it? And uh, maybe it'll never be retrieved. Maybe it'll go to the bottom of the ocean. But uh, if it were to be retrieved, would there be anything useful on board? Or do the Americans have you know, a way to destroy anything valuable on board before it might be taken by somebody else? I don't think they do. Um, in this case, it was it, they were pilots were able to glide it down to the sea rather than just have it sort of plunge out of the sky. Uh, but I don't think they will recover it. It's very, you know, it's not the Black Sea is not a very accessible place right now. It's international waters, but but um, this is the important thing um, that under the Montreux Convention, which is a very very old you know diplomatic document, the Turks have barred countries who don't have ports in the Black Sea from sending additional warships in there. So that means you know you you just can't send a U.S. ship right in there. The Ukrainians could send them on, of course, but the Ukrainian Navy is, is slightly otherwise occupied. Um, and so it's going to be very difficult to get the wreckage. But I don't think there's anything dr- dramatically sensitive. Of course, it depends on the sensors they were carrying. The sensors are the key thing. Um, you know, what what sort of um, um, uh, uh, radio uh, receivers did it have? You know, what could they pick up? How mm. What was their range? But Reapers have gone down in Iraq, Afghanistan, Yemen, Libya. Uh, uh, so, you know, it's not as if these losses are unprecedented. Um, and it's not as if the Russians, you know, will never have seen one of these things before. But I am personally doubtful even, even the Russians would, would probably have the wherewithal to, to, get, to get this very easily. And finally, in terms of if they did manage to get this stuff, uh, the the radio receivers on board and so on, we hear that uh, these are only reports, but that the Russians are taking any uh, American armaments that they recover, unexploded ordnance and other um, equipment that the Ukrainians may either have fired at them and they didn't explode or had to leave behind in their haste to leave an area. And they send them off to Iran to be reverse engineered. Yes, I mean reverse engineering is not as easy as it sounds because you know you need specific <clears throat> microchips that may not be available. You need te- engineering uh, uh, techniques. Um, you know, even for America to produce new Reaper st- Stingers, Stinger missiles, anti-aircraft missiles, isn't proving very easy because you know you need skilled labor, you need production lines. So it's not as easy as it sounds. But of course, you know, getting your hands on certain bits of this kit, particularly new novel bits of it um, that haven't been around for a long time, is very valuable. Stingers were, were famously used in the Soviet Afghan war in the 80s so there's nothing new there javelins are a little bit a little bit sort of more advanced but even they are being superseded but if if the Russians or Iranians ever got their hands on say you know switchblade drones that hadn't been used hadn't been hadn't exploded or detonated or um, you know GM gimblers rounds the sort of GPS guided rounds fired from high Mars that sort of thing you can begin to see why it may give insight to the Iranians and the Russians but it does not mean they can simply produce knockoffs of their own uh, yeah. just by staring at these things yeah it's it's a bit, though, you know, to reverse engineer something is particularly something complex, like handing someone a cake. 
has been <laughs> yes, baked exactly. and say, figure out what went yes. into, that, into that. It's not right, that easy. Right, yes, yes, ex- ex- exactly. A lot of tacit knowledge <laughs> is required. But nonetheless, I think what you point to is very important, which is that we are seeing a defense partnership emerge between the Iranians and the Russians. And it used to be you know, very one way, but the Iranians have turned out to be key suppliers to the Russians. They've given them drones, they could give them missiles. And in exchange, I think that's opening up the aperture of what the Russians may give the Iranians, not just these things you're mentioning, but also Sukhoi 35 jets. Don't forget, their jets are so old. The plane that the Iranians fly is the one that Tom Cruise flew in Top Gun in the 1980s, the, F, the, 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 the Tomcat. So my, you know, my goodness, they are in need of some new kit. Shoshank, thank you very much for joining us. Shoshank Joshi, who is Defence Editor at The Economist. The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance. Weekdays at 9am on News Talk.